Turn with me again, please, to the scriptures, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. Matthew, chapter 22. I'm aware tonight as I bring this that there are many, or different, should I say, uh, people who will think different things, interpretations. I may be controversial. I might stand on some corns. I might tramp on some toes. Uh, I might dig up a few... uh, buried feelings but nevertheless I believe in this is what I believe and I wouldn't preach it if I didn't believe it that's what I'm saying and I want you to bear with me this evening and as we go through this I'm aware that this will go on internet onto iTunes and whatever else that goes on through David all of those things and people will hear not only just here but around the world people will listen to this and I'm conscious of what I'm saying tonight I believe it with all my heart, and well, I believe that people can have difference of opinions, but they can all be wrong if they want. Okay, so, <laughs> but here we go. It's Matthew chapter 22, please, beginning to read at verse 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, We know that thou art true and teachest the way of God and truth, neither carest thou for any man. For thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us therefore, what thinkest thou, is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Keep your Bibles open for for we will be flicking through the scriptures this evening. But let us pray. Eternal Father, Settle us in your presence and thank you for the songs of Zion we'll be able to sing and listen to. And we ask you now, Holy Father, that you would, Lord, anoint us with ears to hear this evening and hearts to receive, Lord, that you would help us and that you would lead us and guide us and direct us in all that we would say. We ask you, Lord, that you would take every opposing thought and spirit and bring it under the subjection to the name of the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would have anything that is not of yourself said to be erased from our memories, but anything and all things that are of you, will you, Lord, engraft it deep into our being. And we ask you, Lord, to enable us this evening to say these truths in love. And, Lord, we ask you, if there's one here that knows not your Son, that you draw them to yourself, realizing that the time of the end is nigh, and that, Lord Jesus, you will return to receive thy kingdom and to set up on this earth. And that every man and woman, Lord, must be ready, prepared, and born again. We ask it all in Jesus' name and for his glory, giving you thanks. Amen. Amen. We've looked over two weeks at this, and just a couple of minutes of a a recap, just to to, to bring you to where we are this evening, for we had a week where we had to break our our theme. And the Lord Jesus is, uh, he is propositioned by the Pharisees and by the Herodians and they come and ask him a question who's they say do do you pay tribute to Caesar or not and he takes a coin and shows it to them and says whose image and superscription is this in other words 
Whose face do you see on this coin? And they say, Caesar's. And so the Lord retorts back to them, Render on their Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and on the God the things that are God's. Now we're told that Christ noticed their heart. He read their will. He read the reason they came to him, and it was to entangle him in his words. And the reason being was there was an emperor on the throne of Rome. The Roman Caesar who ruled from Hadrian's Wall in Great Britain here, right the whole way across uh, Europe and North Africa, Palestine and further on eastward. And we're told that, that this imperial, this august Caesar, he was to be worshipped by all peoples. He was to be worshipped as God, God on earth. He was to be worshipped as the, the Pontifex Maximus. He was to be called the bridge builder, the way or the road to God. That's what Pontifex Maximus means. And he was to be worshipped under different titles. So we looked at that through our, our, especially our first evening. For example, when our Lord says that when, when he came to be saviour of the world, one of the titles that the, the, the Roman Caesars took was the word soter, meaning saviour. And eight of them, eight of the Caesars, claimed for themselves the title soter, saviour of the world. Yet when Christ was born, we were told and it was heralded by the angelic host that a saviour was born into the world. The saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. This would infuriate all of the Roman powers. Of course, we looked at Basilius, he called himself, which means king or king of kings. And so, of course, he had to be worshipped and he had to be obeyed as king of kings. Of course, our Lord Jesus Christ is known as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So we looked through many of these different titles. You'll have to get parts one and two to catch up with us. I'm afraid it would take too long to go through them all. But all of these titles, there was a spirit behind the empire. There was uh, the spirit of, uh, of power and authority to draw all men and women from different nations under, if you want, the then known word or what we would call the global economy under one ecclesiastical political system. And it would be one government from Rome. So that was the Roman Empire that we have looked at throughout the last couple of weeks. So then we want to take you to Daniel chapter 2 this evening. Let's go to it and it brings us right down to where we are in our Lord's day. Daniel chapter 2. Now we've looked at this also but I want to read it just to give you uh, an idea of the flow of this. In fact I asked David to find me uh, an image. He'll maybe put it up if he has it there. Daniel chapter 2, and let's just read from verse 31. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And Daniel interprets his dream and says, verse 31, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible or magnificent. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and arms of silver, his belly on his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them in pieces. 
Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image, notice, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. So here Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was. Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't tell what his dream was. They had to go and find out what it was. Daniel tells him the dream. Now here's the interpretation. Verse 37. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. Notice the title. King of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the fields and the fowls of heaven hath made he given unto thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Notice, thou art this head of gold. Daniel says, the Babylonian system, the Babylonian emperor, the Babylonian kingdom was the head of gold. Verse 39, And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and a third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, it shall break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest that the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with merry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest the iron mixed with merry clay, notice, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Now here's what I want you to notice, verse 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to another, to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now here are these kingdoms, the gold, the silver, the brass, the, the, the iron, the brass rather, the iron, and then the iron mixed with clay. Maybe David, you could flash that up. There we are. Here we have the gold. Babylon, Persia was the silver. Greece was the, was the brass. Roman Empire where our Lord was speaking. Whose image and superscription is this? Are the legs of iron and iron and clay brings us right to the nations today. I want to look at this because it goes a lot deeper and a lot further. But notice what the scripture says. These kingdoms will be in some shape or form. In other words, the mystery religions of Babylon will go right down to the very feet and it will be in operation until Jesus Christ returns and he sets up his kingdom and smashes every single one of these that are involved in the ten toes that are iron and clay. So here we have these wonderful looking kingdoms that we read of. Okay, if you will, will you, let, will you turn over to Daniel chapter 7 for me please? Daniel chapter 7, let's read from verse 1. This is many years later. Daniel's an old man. 
And now he receives a vision or a dream himself. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed and he wrote the dream and told us some of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw my vision by night and behold the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea. Notice this now. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse or different one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked and was lifted up from the earth. And made stand upon the feet as a man. And the man's heart was given to it. And behold another beast, a second like to a bear. And it raised up itself on one side and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise and devour much flesh. After this I beheld and lo, another like a leopard which had upon it the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, after this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly and it had great iron teeth it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it and it had notice ten horns I considered the horns and behold there came up among them another little horn. This is known as Daniel's little horn or the little horn of Daniel. Before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man. And the mouth speaking great things. Now here he notices four great beasts. All different one from another. We're going to show you and take you through these in a moment. Daniel says that he notices these beasts. Look at verse 9. And I beheld till the thrones were cast down. Here are these thrones that we're speaking of being cast down. And the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like fiery flame, and his wings as a burning fire. Let your eye run down to verse 13 for time's sake. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him, notice, there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed." Daniel sees right up to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He sees these great beasts represent something. And then at the second coming again, he's seen a vision of the Lord Jesus ascended glorious and resurrected into heaven. Standing before his father to return again to receive his kingdom and to set it up on planet earth. Here he says, these will be on the earth until, not after, until Christ comes. And then Christ will set up his kingdom. We're told today that this will happen when Jesus returns. It's here. It's happening. It's today. And Christ is coming to smash these kingdoms. To tear them down. And to set up his own glorious 
eternal, and first of all his millennial, and then his eternal kingdom. So let's look at these beasts then for a moment. Notice here is a, a slide of these beasts. You see the, air, the, the lion here with the wings and the bear with the ribs in his mouth. You have the, the leopard with four heads and four wings. And then you have the ten horns and the little horn coming up that looked like a man's face upon the last beast. That was different than the others. The others are like animals. This one's more like a beast. The very last one. See all of them are culminated into the last one before Christ returns. There will be a great, a great day when our Lord Jesus comes. His kingdom is the stone kingdom. It was Israel that come out of the wilderness or out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And Babylon always strived against it. And at last right through gospel times of this very evening. When there's a Babylon and planet earth who's trying to destroy God's people. Who's trying to bring them in under the fold again. And of course we're going to look at that in a little minute. So Daniel had these dreams and visions that would last. Notice the difference here between the first dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the last dream there were vision that Daniel had. Nebuchadnezzar, he sees these visions, gold and silver and brass and iron. And he sees them beautiful and glamorous and, and glorious and lovely and wonderful. He says, oh, aren't this head of gold? And Nebuchadnezzar sees himself as some great boy. But you know, we're told also... That this uh, vision that Nebuchadnezzar has. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Again. Daniel chapter 2. It says the image of his head was of gold. Notice that. Here he sees himself as the head of all. And that goes right down into today. He sees himself as head of all kingdoms. Head of all peoples. Head of all mystery religions. And it goes into the very earth to this very evening. Now take note of this. He sees himself as a wonderful great thing. And these kingdoms are glorious. And then when we come to Daniel chapter 7. We see all these beasts that Daniel sees. What's the difference? You see man sees himself as something great. Whenever you try to witness to someone about needing saved. They go I'm not a bad lad. I'm a good guy. I'm not a bad woman. I'm a nice person. We always see ourselves as someone wonderful, needing not of salvation of Christ. Able to go in our own will, our own ways, our own strength, and our own doings. But the Lord sees us different. He's seen the very vision that, that Daniel had. He showed him through his eyes. And his eyes, God's eyes, he sees these kingdoms as great almighty beasts. And these beasts were terrible. These beasts were beasts that were different. These beasts were beasts that God looked upon these kingdoms in their sinfulness, in their idolatry, in their waywardness. And God says, I see different than you, friend. Do you know something this morning, this evening, friend? God sees different than you see. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. And God showed Daniel something wonderful in the earth. Something terrible when he showed him all of these beasts. You know, friend, for you and I to be saved, you and I need to see ourselves through the eyes of the Lord. We need to see ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior. 
We need to see ourselves in the deepest of depravity in ourselves. And you know, there's nothing we can do to merit salvation. And that, that goes across the board to everyone on planet Earth. Whether you're growing up, whatever denomination or religion you grew up. Every single one of us need the Savior. Think of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22 tells us. Tells us that the Jews required a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. You know what that means? The Jews were looking for a Messiah, not for a Savior. They're looking for a great champion to come. They were looking for a knight in shining armor, someone who would release them from the legs of iron, the Roman uh, Caesars. But this man comes, meek and lowly, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and says, I'll die for you and shed my blood that you may be forgiven and that you'll come into my eternal kingdom. Not enough, we want to say. So do you think, friend, maybe you want to say? The Greeks sought after wisdom. They went down their streets of Athens and other places and, and they heard great poets and they heard great philosophers and they thought it was marvelous. But to think that someone who is a god, our gods are up there and they're like great emperors, they would say, and, and they're up there and they're moving people about like pawns and playing games with us and, and our gods are mighty and strong and powerful. You look at their statues full of muscular, phys, physical fit men. Great prowess, they're saying, that's a Greek god, Atlas, who holds the very world on his shoulder. And yet this man comes and says, I'll bleed and die for them. What sort of a God is that? Jews, they require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. There's more power in the cross of Jesus Christ. There's death, burial and resurrection in the powers of this world and the kingdoms of this world. So here we have these kingdoms, friend, and one moves on from the other. Babylon is the gold head. I want to show you for a minute and tell you something about this. You see, this is where we get into muddy water. Turn with me to Daniel 7. This is where we get into muddy water. We'll look at these beasts in a moment, okay? And let your eye run down. Verse 7, just to the end of verse 7. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I note this. It had ten horns. Daniel says, I considered the horns and behold. Notice the way he says it. And behold. Now look at this. There came up among them another little horn. Before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. Now we'll look at that. What is this little horn that comes up among the ten horns? Well... I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to explain it to you. And I'm going to look at these four beasts briefly as we come to it. But I want to start with that little horn. Now, I'm in for a hiding here probably. I'm going to tell you what that little horn is. That little horn is the papal authority of Rome. That is the papal Caesars of Rome. Claiming to be God on earth. The vicar of Christ. He who sits as Papa on, in the Vatican this evening. That's the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. Now, 
there has been over the last, say, 150 years, different ideas on this. And people might say, well, how do you know this? Well, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 says, we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. And today we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, friend. For example, you know, people say, just in case people think, by the way, uh, accuse me of being some maverick, small-minded bigot. Let me say this here. Maybe you'll think I'm stuck in the past and I'm not being very politically correct in my theology. Okay. Now let me say before I go any further, I want you to know I worked among the Roman Catholic people for five years. Served them. Didn't rule over them. I served them. And in fact, some of them have been here the other week to see me again. They thought that much of the ministry when we were there. So let's put that to the side. We love every man and woman's soul, no matter who they are. So I worked there. I'm not trying to be politically correct. I'm not trying to be PC and not wanting nor meaning to offend or anyone or to incite any hatred or hurt or harm. I don't want to be PC. I want to be BC. Publicly correct. Now I could tell you lies and you could get involved and you could be drawn into uh, ecumenical services and you could go wayward for years and if you're saved, even the very elect, they could be, they could be duped into things, friend. It's not very politically correct in 2011 to say these things, but I'm going to say it anyhow. Listen. Let me show you the great cloud of witnesses that surround us even to this very evening. What about the Reformation worthy such as John Huss? John Huss who refused the blast from his mass and was burnt at the stake. Or what about John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation who translated the scriptures? Or what about Martin Luther? Martin Luther who in 1517 nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. Or what about Melanchthon or Zwingli or John Calvin, the great uh, French theologian? Or, or Beza or Boucher? Or what about John Knox? John Knox was the one who started the Scottish Reformation. And in fact, John Knox in St. Andrews preached from Daniel chapter 7. And the little horn of the Reformation started in Scotland. What about such worthies also? As Farrar or Hooper, what about Latimer, Ridley and Cranmer who were burnt at the stake in the fires of Smithfield? What about Usher and Firth and Barnes and Philpott and Bacon and Turner and Cartwright and Barrow and Jewell and Coverdale who gave us the Coverdale's Bible? They all preached this same message. Were they all wrong? Are they all maverick? What about Lord Coburn or Hooker or Ainsworth or Dent? What about John Fox who wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs? Every library should have that, by the way. What about Folk and Bradford and Bullinger and his Hebrew and Greek works? What about Rogers and Hutchison and Whitgift and Sir Francis Drake? There's a whole host of others. What about George Wishart, who was burnt at the stake in St. Andrews? I've stood at the very spot, there's a plaque there. They burned him for his faith, for he cried, The just shall live by faith. And they took him and burnt him at the stake. Or what about men like Sir Isaac Newton and Sir Henry Vance or Brightman or Milton or Beard? Or what about Richard Baxter who was known as the Reformed Pastor? What about Bishop Newton or John Bunyan who who wrote Pilgrim's Progress? 
or Fleming or Charles Wesley and John Wesley and Matthew Henry, the prince of the commentators, who give us a great commentary. Or what about Jonathan Edwards, who preached the great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? They all believed this. What about Gill and Adam Clark and his great works, or John Trapp and his famous works, or, or Brown or Augustus Topnery, who, pre- who wrote that hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed, be from sin the double cure, seal me from its guilt and power. What about men like this? What about Matthew Poole and his commentary? What about Clarkson and Swimmock and Brooks and Charnock and Sibs and, and Godwin and, and Goodwin and, and John Owen and his great works? Friend, these, all these men believe what I'm teaching you tonight. What about Hall and Cunningham and Thomas Manton and, and Smith and Adams and Perkins and Gilpin and Field? And, and what about Durham, the Bishop Durham? What about all these men who died and, and, and had writings for their faith? We've forgotten all of them. And we're accumulating with every Tom, Dick and Harry that calls us into fellowship. Because it's politically correct. I'd rather cut off my tongue. What about Burroughs and Thomas Fuller? These names might not mention, but there's people here who know these names. What about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher? He preached this. He believed this with all his heart. What about J.A. Wiley? He wrote the history of Protestantism. Four great big volumes. Thousands of pages I've got at home in my library. Or Elliot or Cumming or Bishop Good. What about J.C. Ryle? Albert Barnes and his commentaries, Wordsworth, the Reverend Alexander Hislop and the two Babylons, what he read. What about A.J. Gordon, who was often called the father of fundamentalism? You've ever heard of D.L. Moody and the Moody Bible Institute? He preached this also. What about Hudson Taylor and Grattan Guinness, the great evangelist from Dublin, and Salmond and the Reverend Dinsdale T. Young? I'm sure many of you have heard of him. What about Horn and Close and T.T. Shields and Kensett and Baron Percelli and Finney and F.B. Meyer? They all believe this, but today they're telling you bumpkin and hogwash it's away somewhere else. Let's all get together and love one another. Friend, I will love your soul, but I won't worship in hell with you. I love you enough to tell you the truth. Listen to this, the Episcopalian Irish Articles of Faith. In other words, the Church of Ireland. Now, if you're from the Church of Ireland or the Church of England or whatever, you need to go and ask your own minister these things, okay? The Irish Articles, number 79 and number 80. Listen to their words, not mine. The Bishop of Rome now challengeth to be supreme head of the Universal Church of Christ. And to be alone above all emperors, kings and princes is a usurper, as a usurped power to the scriptures and word of God. His works and doctrine do plainly discover him to be that man of sin foretold in the Holy Scriptures. Or what about the Presbyterians of Westminster Confession of Faith? I wonder when I see some of them, 
I wonder when I see them standing with them and worshipping with them. I wonder do they even adhere to these things they say they believe. Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 25 paragraph 6. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. But is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalted himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God? And where have they moved to tonight? What about the Congregationalist? The Savoy Declaration, chapter 26, paragraph 4. Having time to read it. Or the Baptist Confession of 1688, chapter 26, and paragraph 4. Or what about the Wesley, the, jo- the Methodist John Wesley? He says, he it is that opposeth himself to emperor. Once his rightful sovereign exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, commanding angels and putting kings under his feet. Where were the feet in, in Daniel chapter 2, their feet were after the legs of Rome that moved into Europe. Claiming the highest power, the highest honour, implied in his ordinary title, calls himself holy, most holy Lord and most holy Father. Declaring himself that he is God, claiming the prerogatives which belong to God alone. What about... George Jeffries. Did he believe what you're preaching? Absolutely yes. He was called the revivalist and the reformer. Now you go and you can ask if you don't belong to us what your pastor or minister believes. That's what I believe. Now you all know. That's what I believe. But I also believe this isn't just about a church of Rome, by the way. This is about apostate <coughs> Protestants. Those people, listen, you see them following and they're carrying their, 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 their blue bags, the blue bag brigade along with all their drinking it. And their t-shirts used to be smoking the dope, kicking the Pope, living in a proddy wonderland. They know nothing of faith and they're lost. They know nothing of faith and they're lost. Let's look at these four beasts. Time's flown already. Will you just give me an army way? I'm only getting into it. <laughs> Folks, you know what's happening? It's being watered down to have a nice day and let's all love one another. God's word's forever settled in heaven. God told us these beasts would be upon the earth. And he told us saints to stand and be separate from them. Excuse me for getting... But excited, but there we are. Daniel chapter 7. I'm warm to verse 4. Let's look at the first one. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I beheld until the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from off the earth, and made stand upon feet as a man. And a man's heart, notice this beast, a man's heart was given to it. If you were to go to archaeology sites where Babylon is, or you can go to, even go to the the British Museum, and you'll find that the main uh, emblem of Babylon and that, that era in time was a winged lion. A great winged lion. So the winged lion is the head of gold. Here he sees himself, Nebuchadnezzar sees himself, 
gold and silver, the next kingdom. Glorious, but God sees them as a ravenous and a twisted beast. So it's a winged lion. The first was like a lion. And if you go, you'll find clay tablets with such things on them. What does it mean that it had feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it? See in Daniel chapter... Do us off memory now. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, he has a great dream. Thou art this head of gold. Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar lets his head be blown up and puffed up and he builds a great big spire for all to worship it. You notice all the worship together, bring everyone in. No one's to worship their own God but me. Pontificates over the people. And then of course we know that the three Hebrew boys thrown into the fire, they won't bow down to the image. That's in, in Daniel chapter 3. And, and that's a golden image after the golden head. Then Daniel chapter 4, the Lord brings him down to size. And he grows his hairs like feathers and his nails grow like an animal's nails. And after seven years, God gives Nebuchadnezzar relief and brings him back to place of power. And that was, he was given a man's heart. God changes his heart. And see brothers and sisters, no matter who you are, when you're really dealt with by the Lord, he changes your heart. There's people saying, I'm a Christian. There's no change. There's no change of life and there's no change of heart. So that is the man's heart. Let's look on down again. Verse 5. And behold, another beast, the second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side and had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they... And they, and they said thus unto it, Arise and devour much flesh. See this beast, it's like a bear. Oh, it's away. Now this beast, it's like a bear. It actually is raised up on one side. And this gives the idea that there was a, a lopsided government. In other words, it was the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus was the Persian, or the, where is Iran today, the Iranian prince. And Darius from Daniel chapter 5 was, he was, was the Medo, the Medo, uh, the Median prince. And the two of them got together, and you read Daniel chapter 5, when Belshazzar's having his feast, the writing is on the wall, these two princes come together, but one starts to take power over the other one. That's the silver kingdom of the man. Notice these beasts are all ferocious. They're all great warriors. And he takes more power. It has three ribs in its mouth. And these three ribs were three kingdoms that were taken. The first one was, was Babylon itself. The second one was Lydia, which is parts of Turkey today. And the third one was Egypt, part, or parts of Egypt anyhow. And they were the three ribs that were in the mouth of this great bear. And it was lopsided because it was Cyrus who became prominent. He became the main leader. And it was Cyrus who allowed the Jews to go home. The Lord said through Isaiah, I will call a ravenous bird. And he says, I'll move upon him. And the Lord called a ravenous bird Cyrus. And he says that to let his people go, just like he did to Pharaoh. And they come out to build the temple and the walls of Jerusalem again. And God's word fantastic here. And you can see here this beast, Cyrus became more prominent. And of course there are many other scriptures I could give you concerning this. Cyrus was told by the Lord God to build a house for his name. So he sent them all forth. Okay, so let's look at the third beast, 
briefly. You could do one of these on, on, on night, couldn't you really? Verse 6, After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. You see the four wings on its back. This speaks of Alexander the Great, this, this third beast. Speaks of Alexander the Great, which is the belly, or the belly of brass. And Alexander the Great came after the Medo-Persians in Daniel chapter 2. And Alexander the Great, when he came, they basically started out with four uh, small provinces. And these four small provinces, I have them written down, so I hope I can remember them, were Sparta, Athens, Macedonia, and Thebes. And those four provinces, they ganged the came together under Alexander the Great and they moved so fast like a leopard, ferocious and they, they destroyed everywhere they went right out to India and of course this, this beast that came then had four uh, heads four leopards heads also what does that mean? the four heads of the leopard was this when Alexander the Great died he had no sea to, to leave his, his territory and, and his, uh, uh, his kingdom to so there were four generals, and I thank, thank goodness I've written their names down. There were four generals, and they were separated his kingdom into four parts, four heads of state. Thrace and Bithynia went to Lysimachus. Macedonia went to Cassander. Syria and the east went to Seleucus Nacor. That's, that's the, the names of the, the, the generals. While Egypt went to Ptolemy Soter, or Ptolemy who said, Saviour. You see where it's all coming from. And that was the four heads of the four lepers. Okay, let's move swiftly on. That's the belly of bronze. Then we're moving down to verse 7. And after this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, strong exceedingly, that had great iron teeth. Here is the Roman Empire. The iron teeth, the iron legs, and the feet of iron and clay. So this was to carry right through a very ferocious empire. And it had iron teeth. And it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet. Notice where it is? At the feet. It was diverse from all the beasts where it was before. And it had ten horns. Now, let me tell you about these ten horns for a minute. The ten horns, people say, are the ten, ten would be 10 uh, nations of the European Union. Now listen, we're about 27 nations at the minute. And it might, it might come down a little. But here right at the time of the Roman Empire, there was uh, many nations under them that had a great empire, but there were 10 main ones who turned on the Roman Empire. And the 10 nations that turned on them, uh, if I can remember all of their names, I, I have some of them written down. They were the... The, the Goths, the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, the Physigoths, uh, the Franks, the Alamandi, the Burgundian, and the Seleucids. And there's another two, I'll get them for you if I can remember them. But there's about ten different nations and they all turned against Rome. And the Caesar, the cult of Caesar, it, it, it continued on where people worship. And when the early Christians were told that their children were brought before the lions, and it says, see these lions, they're going to eat your children. All you have to do is take the salts and, and the sands and throw it into the fire and heal Caesar and claim him as God and king. 
The early Christians rather stood and sang praises unto God, claimed Jesus as Lord and King. We can't even get people to claim Jesus as King over in their television sets. But Jesus says, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Satan's seat, the gates of hell were prevailing. They were hitting the church and they stood for truth. I better hurry up. I'm going to go down a different lane. And here we have then the ten horns that arose up. These ten kings turned on Rome. And in 410 AD, Rome withdrew their troops. And then they had a lot of confusion after the fall of the Caesars. And after the fall of the Caesars, there arose a little horn up from the ten. And that was the papal Caesar. Now see those ten kingdoms. Those ten kingdoms are what make up today most of the European Union. So the ten toes and the ten teeth run right into today. I want to read this to you. And then I'm going to round up. I know I've, I've just too much and we'll have to do another night. Will I do another night? Yeah, we'll do another night. Let me read this. And this is written from different articles. Vatican Super, Supranationality Authority. Listen to this. Monday, October the 24th, 2011. Just a few days ago. The Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace published its recommendation for a global empowered international authority over the world's finances. This move by the Vatican may seem like simply another academic paper for policy wonks. But for students of Bible prophecy, the move represents possibilities of tremendous prophetic significance. The paper bearing the lengthy title toward reforming the international financial and monetary systems in the context of a global public authority does not carry the force of a papal bull or require the obedience of a faithful Roman Catholic. But it does closely follow the principles expressed by Pope Benedict XVI's 209 speech concerning current financial calamities engulfing the world's systems. Now Reuters uh, News has written this. Reuters article continues... It called for the establishment of a supranational authority with worldwide scope and universal jurisdiction to guide economic policies and decisions. Such an authority should start with the United Nations as its reference point, but later became, become independent and be endowed with power to see to it that developed companies were not allowed to wield excess power over weaker. Now listen to this. The paper calls for a creation of a centralized world bank. This is the new world order. The Vatican's calling for this. A world bank, much like the United States Federal Reserve System, that would be supported by global taxes. They want the world to be taxed and brought in. To be supported by global taxes on financial transactions. And according to the Catholic News Service article on the paper, the global bank could be used to ensure that banks are recapitalized in a manner conditioned on veritas behavior. Now listen to this. The Washington Post commented, ultimately the plan would help establish. Notice, hey, this isn't my, my, this is my words. These aren't my words. Washington Post. 
Ultimately, the plan would help establish a world political authority envisioned by the Popes John the 23rd in 1963 and Benedict the 16th in 2009. The little horn, financial, economical, governmental. And you know what that is? Read Genesis 10 and you go home. The Tower of Babel. Get everyone together under one language, one form of worship. Bring them all in. And that's rule over everyone. So some of you might go home fill out me tonight. People might switch off on the internet. But I love you enough to tell you the truth. May God bless his word to us. We'll do another night. We'll look at Revelation. We're into Revelation. The book of Revelation is full of this stuff. Full of it. Let me say this. Can I say this by the way? We'll look at the... I done one on the European Union. I'll maybe do it again. i revamp it and do it again. For, for to go in, in with this as well. Let me say this. We have people in here who came out of the Church of Rome and we love you. Just the way we love people come out of nominal Protestantism, we love you too. This isn't about Protestant and Catholic. This is about the truth of the Scriptures and the Word of God. You must be born again, no matter who you are. Let's get that into our minds. We love you as in the Lord. Time's flown over. Thank you for listening to me. It was a big subject and there's still an awful lot more. We'll go for part four next week then, God willing. The Lord hopefully give us the strength to continue. Jane, will you come and sing for us? Before we wrap up and go home then. Thank you.